When we left off last time in the book of Acts, you'll recall that Paul had just been rescued from a riot. He had been on the, he had gone into the temple with some others that were there to pay a vow, and he was falsely accused by some of the Jewish leaders of bringing a Gentile into a restricted area. They whipped up the crowd. Uh, They went in and attacked Paul. They were uh, trying to kill Paul, and the Romans who were in the fortress of Antonian oversaw Uh, could see down into the temple complex from their fortress walls, and they rushed into the temple and they rescued Paul. Paul was carried out of the temple complex. They were taking him up the steps into the fortress, the adjacent fortress, and Paul asked the commander if he could speak to the crowd. Paul began to uh, try to set the record straight that he had not violated any of the, the law, was pointing people to who he was, and who Christ was. And at that moment, as he started speaking about Christ and his work among the Jews and the Gentiles, the riot kind of sparked again, and the commander pulled Paul into the safety of the the barracks inside the fortress walls. And as Paul was brought in, the Roman commander knew Paul was at the center of the problem, and he wanted to know what was going on. And so thinking that Paul would not give him the truth and the crowd was in chaos every time he tried to get an answer. There were different things being shouted. He said, we're going we're gonna to torture Paul and beat the truth out of him. And as he was about, as Paul was strung up and was about to be tortured, it said in Acts twenty two twenty five and 6, and when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and he told him, saying, What are you about to do for this man is a Roman? Now the text goes on to tell us they reacted with fear. Because as a Roman citizen, he had civil rights and due process and various things. And the Romans knew that what they were about to do was illegal. So they released Paul, not from the fortress. Uh, They kept him there, but they untied him from the torture rack. Now the commander was faced with a dilemma. He needed to know what the problem was because he was charged with keeping peace in Jerusalem, and obviously the Jews were rioting. He couldn't get the answer from the crowd. He was afraid Paul wouldn't tell him the truth because he couldn't torture him, so he was left with the last option of bringing in the Jewish authorities, uh, the council called the Sanhedrin, which we see happening in Acts 22.30. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why Paul had been accused by the Jews. He released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set them before him. Now, I told you the council is called the Sanhedrin, and this word literally means sitting together. And this was the Jewish high court. It was made up of 70 Jewish religious leaders and the high priest. So they were a council of 71. And Paul is there in the fortress. They don't go to the normal venue where the Sanhedrin meets. They're told to come to the fortress area and assemble for a meeting. So there's this hastily called meeting. They're brought in, and Paul, as he's put before them, it's like laying steel on a grinder because we see the sparks begin to fly immediately. It says in Acts 23, 1 through 2, And Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those standing beside him to strike him in the mouth. So Paul is brought into this room. The council is there. He studies the crowd for a moment, and he decides, how am I going to approach uh, my defense with this group? So he starts out at a personal level. He says, brothers. 
He's not saying you're brothers in Christ. What he's saying is, hey guys, I'm a Jew just like you. And in fact, what he's appealing to is not only his racial uh, heritage, but he's saying, you guys know me. I mean, remember that Paul is a Pharisee. Paul is a religious leader who we saw back in Acts 7 and 8 was part of this inner circle. He was a a guy who was an up-and-coming person. He said in Acts 22, as he's giving his defense before the crowd, he says, I was schooled under Gamal, the great rabbi, the mentor to many of you. Paul is a a guy that has the pedigree of this religious group. He He was there at the trial of Stephen. The guy who was the first Christian martyred, Paul was in this inner circle. He was the one who watched over the coats as they murdered Stephen, stoning him to death. Paul had gone to this group 20 years earlier and said, give me letters, warrants of arrest to go to Damascus and drag back Christians, men and women, to be put on trial and even killed like Stephen was just martyred. Paul was a part of this inner group, and he's appealing to this. But as Paul is trying to build that bridge, we see the high priest shuts it down. He says, Paul, you're a traitor, you're an enemy, and he orders somebody, punch Paul in the mouth. And as this happens, it says in verse 3, Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And, And how do you sit trying me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? Now, these are words that these guys have heard before. You recall when Christ was dealing with these religious leaders, he was telling them, you guys are hypocrites. Called them a brood of viper, whitewashed tombs. Paul says the same thing. He says, you guys are hypocrites. You you look like this pretty whitewashed wall. There's this this exterior of righteousness, but he says you're rotting. Your your sin is just this decay that is going on, but behind the scenes. And as Paul speaks these words, Everybody in the room knew it was true. There was a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. He was not a believer. And his writings are are wonderful for us today because they give us a comparison of all the history we see in the Bible. We're able to to see how this uh, non-believing source confirms so much of what is, is recorded for us in the scriptures. And what Josephus tells us about Ananias, this high priest, is this guy was a hypocrite. He was a, a person who was known for, for his arrogance, for taking bribes. He even stole tithes from the temple. He, he was a person known for his anger. We see that here as he didn't like what Paul said. So he says, hey, knock this guy's teeth out. Just punch Paul in the mouth. And so as Paul says, you're a hypocrite, his, his words are, are hitting home. He says, you're a whitewashed wall. And beyond that, his words are very prophetic because he says, God is going to strike you. And as he says this, again, we know from history what happened. Less than a decade after this event is taking place, we know in 66 AD that uh, some of the Jews revolted against Rome. And Ananias was hand in glove with the Romans. And so they went after this high priest. They went to his house. They burned it to the ground. Ananias fled to Herod's temple, I mean Herod's palace. And they intercepted him there as he was trying to hide in an aqueduct. Ananias was taken out and, and killed by the mob. And so these words came true. But as he says these words, uh, look at what happens in verses four and five. It says, but the bystander said to him, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, some people look at this and say that These are sarcastic words. You know, Paul is essentially saying, 
They know this guy was the high priest because no righteous religious leader is going to violate the law and, and ask him to do what he said to, to hit me in the mouth, so I don't have to respect him. That's not what's occurring. Uh, remember that Paul is a man, as you read through the scriptures, it said he had bad eyes. It could have been when he was blinded on the road to Damascus that there was this lingering problem with his eyesight. It may have been other things. But the scriptures tell us Paul had bad eyesight. And remember, this is a hastily called meeting. They've been summoned to the Romans' place rather than their typical venue. So the high priest isn't in his finery, his robes. He's not sitting at the, the front chair and the court in this horseshoe where everybody would know who he is. Instead, Paul's in this, this group of this crowd of 70 other people besides the high priest, and he hears a voice call out from the crowd, punch the guy in the mouth. And Paul just responds in a human way, a, a bit of anger. But we see in verse 2, he said, my conscience is clear to this day. And yet we see that his conscience is bothered when people say, what are you doing, Paul, rebuking the high priest? Because at the end of verse 5, he quotes from the book of Exodus when he says that it's not right to speak evil about a ruler. That's from Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. You see, while this man Ananias was a hypocrite and while he was somebody who, who was not worthy personally of respect, Paul recognized that his position, his God-given office of the high priest was worthy of respect. And I think there's some application in our day as we look at our current situation politically. Uh, maybe I'm the only one here. You know I never talk about politics, but I'll just tell you, as I look at the landscape, the desolate political landscape, as I look at the choices that we as a nation have before us, it's very easy to say, you know, I don't, I don't like any of the choices. They're not worthy of respect. But as believers, what God says to us is we need to pray. We need to pray for our leaders. If you don't like the man or woman in a, in a position of authority, if you don't like the decisions that are being made, we're not to, to revile them. What we're to do is to go to the Lord and pray for revival, that we're to ask that God would change the hearts of these leaders over us, that we are to ask that God would give them wisdom and direction, that we as a nation deserving of judgment for turning our back on God and are getting our just desserts with who is, is being produced, we as believers should be on our hands and knees, on our faces before the Lord and saying, God, would you show mercy and grace to us? Would you turn the hearts of these leaders back to you? Would you turn us as a nation back? And so Paul, as he uh, rebukes the priest, he feels bad about it. And he apologizes not so much to the person, but to the office and says, I was wrong in what I did. Now, in terms of being guided by uh, God, our conscience, Paul says, is one of the things he has a clear conscience. And that's one of the ways God directs us. Uh, God has given us our conscience. The, the Greek word literally means to know with or to know together. And what that means is we know in our heart and mind uh, what is right and wrong, don't we? God has created us in a way that we, we know ultimately what is right and wrong. This is a word Paul uses many times. It's found in Acts 24, 16, where we're going to see him speak about his conscience again when he's before the governor, Felix. It's a favorite word of Paul. He uses it 21 other times in his other New Testament letters. And what, the, the, what our conscience is, is something that judges or witnesses to us. It approves what we do right, and it disapproves when we do wrong. A good description of how it operates is found in Romans chapter 2. Paul writes in Romans two fourteen and 15, For when Gentiles, now remember Gentiles are non-Jews. 
They haven't been raised under the law. They don't know the scriptures like the Jews did. And it says when a, when a Gentile, it says, who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. What he says is you may not be able to quote chapter and verse of the Bible, but you know it's wrong to do certain things. And he says that's your conscience. That's what God has given you. Now the world likes to tell us let your conscience be your guide. Have you ever heard that? Now that's not always a good idea, is it? Because if your conscience is flawed, then the end result is going to be flawed. Think, for instance, compare our conscience to a compass. I like to backpack in the mountains, and there are times I go off trail, and I take a a map and a compass, and and you're trying to get from here to there, and and you're hoping you're reading your maps right and shooting the right uh, path up and over ridges. And if you have a really cheap compass, you learn real quick that's not a good idea when you're out there in the backcountry because it's not always... Uh, the best one. But even if you have a great, very expensive, well-made compass, if it's interfered with, if you get it near metal or a magnetic source, it can draw it off. And so even though you have a guide, it's not reliable because it's, it's not giving you a good reading. And the problem with our conscience is that it can be flawed. It can be seared. The Bible describes it in various ways. It says it can be seared, dulled, hardened, calloused. You can pick your verb or your adjective, but you don't get to pick your standard. You see, because God has given us a standard. There is an absolute called his word. And God has given us another standard that is a perfect guide called the Holy Spirit. Those who are believers, the Bible tells us, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the spirit of God dwells within you? We've seen in the book of Acts that as Christians, God gave us his Holy Spirit to be our guide, to lead us and to empower us. And what happens is a conscience by itself is like a thermostat because you can change the setting on a thermostat, can't you? You can go in and raise the temperature or lower it. So if, you, if the thermometer is reading something, it's, it's directed by the thermostat where you've set it. So if you're saying, well, Roger, my conscience uh, is leading me a certain way, but you've set it contrary to the absolute standard of God's word, you're going to get a flawed result. Uh, let me explain it this way. As you read Isaiah 5.20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. You see, what happens is sometimes our, our standard is wrong. And so we say, well, my conscience is fine. And the problem is our conscience can be, like I said, seared, calloused, uh, various things that we, we see in the Bible. You can think in terms of a, a square peg, If you've ever uh, gotten a square peg, you know there can be these really sharp corners. And if you put it into something that is soft and you turn that peg, what's going to happen? You've kind of made a hole, and as you turn it, those sharp edges are going to rub, and it's going to start digging out the things around it. And over time, as you turn that square peg, one of two things can happen. It can just dig out the entire hole so it's rounded, or it can rub off the sharpness of the edges. And you end up no longer feeling... Uh, any kind of friction. Have you ever had a screw that has a stripped head and you put your, your drill bit in there and it just spins because it's been rounded out and there's no edge for it to catch on? And that's what happens with our conscience sometimes. There was a young man who came to his pastor 
And he said, you tell, Pastor, I hear you talk about sin and this, this weight of it and how God convicts us. And he said, but I, I don't really feel uh, this weight of sin. He says, how much does sin weigh? Is it 10 pounds? Is it 20 pounds, 80 pounds? And the pastor said to this young man, he said, let me ask you something. If I take a 100-pound weight and I lay it on a dead body, a corpse, he said, does, does that dead body feel the weight? And the guy said, no, of course not, it's dead. And he said, so it is with us. He said, in those times where we don't feel the weight of our sin, if we don't get our conscience pricked, it means maybe that we're dead or we've grown dead to sin. As you think about your own life and that rounding out, so to speak, are there things in your own life that used to bother you, but they don't bother you anymore? You know, I've counseled with Christians before who will tell me, you know, uh, Pastor Roger, I used to, when I would do this thing, I would feel really bad about it. I knew it was wrong. I knew the Bible said not to do that. And so, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd sin and I'd, I'd feel like I needed to, to stop. You know, that's what repentance is. The Bible says when we recognize in our mind we're going in the wrong direction, repentance literally means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. It means we stop. We recognize we're going the wrong way. We turn around and we go back in the other direction. That means if we're going away from God, we come to him. Or if as a person who's never come to faith in Christ, we recognize we're headed away from God and we need to come to his son. So they say, you know, I used to feel bad about it and I would stop. I'd confess my sin. I'd ask God to help me not do that. And I'd make some changes in my life. But then a short time later, I'd do it again feel guilty. I'd go back, I'd repeat the process, and I'd start all over. But then they say, you know, what's interesting is I don't feel so bad about it anymore. I, you know, if you can't beat them, join them, right? So we, we start sinning. We don't feel that peg turning in our heart anymore. The heart's been rounded out, and so we say it's okay. That's our conscience. That's imperfect. It's flawed. Because we've grown callous or hardened. But what God says is the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. He tells us that's wrong. And there is an absolute. And whether we all go up on a 10-story building and suddenly agree that there's no gravity. And so, hey, we've set a new standard, right? You step off that 10-story building and tell me if gravity still exists or not. It's not up to us to decide. It's there. And so this is what we're being told about. The Bible describes it a different way. Paul, as he wrote the book of Ephesians... He used this illustration of hardening or callousness that sets in. He said in Ephesians 4.19, because of the hardness of their heart, they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. That word, having become callous, literally means having ceased to feel pain. It's this illustration of that, that weight on a dead body. So I'll ask you a question this morning. When you find yourselves in those times where you know you're going against God and his standard, do you feel that weight of sin? Do you feel a burden? Or have you gotten to a point where it doesn't bother you anymore? Because if it doesn't bother you anymore, it, it's probably a good indication to you of the fact that you've walked away from God, that you've been far from him, and so you've kind of grown hardened to him. Or it may even be that it, it helps you recognize you don't know God in the first place. And God wants you to come to him. 
Not so you can walk around in life and say, no, thank you. I don't want to walk around feeling guilty. Oh, I'm so bad. I'm a sinner. I've got this guilt. That's not how God wants us to live, brothers and sisters. The Bible doesn't tell us that God wants us to look like Adam and Eve. Do you remember Adam and Eve in the garden when they disobeyed and sinned against God? What happened to them? They'd been in this perfect fellowship with God. But it says when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they recognized their nakedness. And it says they they disobeyed and their reaction was not to go to God and say, we blew it, we're sorry. It says they ran and hid. Now, as God was walking in the garden wanting to have fellowship with man and woman, he said, where are you? And they said, well, we were scared, we hid ourselves. And he said, who told you you were naked? God knew they had disobeyed. He knew what was going on. And do you remember what God did? It says that he took the life of an animal. The Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. It says that there was a a life lost and God took the skins of the animal and covered the man and the woman. Now, because of his great love as well, he drove them out of the garden because he didn't want them to live in their fallen imperfect state for eternity where the the tree of life was. So there was this separation because of our sin. And what God says to us is when we sin as Christians, God doesn't want us just to walk around feeling like we're dirt. What he says in 1 John 1, 9 is if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What God says is he wants us to come to him. He wants us to have repentance where we return to him and we restore that fellowship. Do you remember what Paul said in verse 2? He said, my conscience is clear. And we're sitting here reading this going, Paul, are you numb? Are you calloused? I mean, you killed a guy named Stephen. You were persecuting believers, locking them up. You did all kinds of bad things to the church. You denied Jesus. How can your conscience be clear? And what Paul writes about in some of his other New Testament letters is, he says, when I came to faith in Jesus Christ... My sins were nailed to the cross. The blood of Jesus washed them away. The Bible tells us God removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. And Paul understood his position in Christ as a a son of God, was an adopted son. We can be sons and daughters adopted into the family where God doesn't hold our sin over us. He says if we confess it, he's forgiven it and removed it. So Paul could legitimately stand there and say, I have a clear conscience before the Lord. It's not that he said, I never sinned, I'm a good guy. Read Paul's letters. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And then he says, thanks be to God for Christ Jesus. He says, that's how my sin was removed. Paul goes on in another place and he says, says, I'm the worst sinner of everybody. But as he stands before these religious leaders, he says, listen guys, I'm clean. Not because I've kept the law, I'm clean because of what Christ did where he came and he took my sin and he nailed it to the cross and he washed it away by his blood. And Paul wants us today to understand that freedom that is available to us by coming to Christ. Paul wanted these religious leaders to have that freedom as he offers it to them. Look at what he does in verses 6 through 10. It says, but perceiving that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out to the council. Brethren, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. See, Paul's trying to get to this message of the gospel. 
The, the Pharisees and Sadducees, this is like the Republicans and Democrats coming together, right? And there's this war among them. And the Sadducees, you can remember this by saying it's sad you see that they don't believe in the resurrection. These, these guys didn't believe in this, it says. And there arose a dissension between the Pharisees, of which Paul was, and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there arose a great uproar. Some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And a great dissension was developing. The commander, afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them, and he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him back into the barracks. In Matthew ten 16, we're told to be shrewd as serpents, but gentle as doves. And this is what Paul's doing. He's tried the personal approach. I got him a punch in the mouth. So he shifts gears to the doctrinal approach. And he says, look, I know there's a division here. Some of you are Pharisees. You believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees don't. So he divides them. Now, he's not playing politics. He's not saying, how do I get them fighting among themselves? We saw in verse 6 that he said, the whole thing is about the hope of the resurrection. And that is the ultimate part of the gospel message that was rejected by all the religious Jews. Do you remember what happened when Christ was crucified? Nobody said Jesus didn't die on the cross. Muslims do. They say Jesus really didn't die on the cross, but he did. History tells us he was killed. He was buried in the tomb. And then he rose from the dead, it says, three days later. That's where the whole thing breaks apart for the Jews. They paid off the guards. They said, say somebody came and stole his body. And they, they tried to deny the resurrection. And what Paul says is there is a resurrection. And Jesus did rise from the dead. And so this is where he's going after the heart of the gospel. He says, I am on, on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And as Paul lays this foundation, as he starts to wade into the message of the gospel, we see this riots taking place. And the Roman commander wades in and says, grab Paul and let's get back in the fortress. Paul's about to be ripped limb from limb again by these religious leaders. And in the next part of the passage, we see how this commander says, I'm responsible for the life of Paul. He's a Roman citizen. I'm the Roman commander. If something happens to him, I could be held accountable. So look at what happens beginning in verse 11 to the end of the chapter. It says, but on the night immediately following, so Paul's had these two days of hard things happening. Paul's back in the prison there in the barracks. He says, on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage, for you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem so that you must also witness at Rome. And when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who formed this plot. And they came to the chief priests and the elders. And they said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. And he came and he, he entered the barracks and he told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. Now, the next verses tell us that this nephew of Paul 
Remember, Paul had been in this inner circle, so there were family connections to all these religious leaders. Paul's family at this point, we're not told, had become believers, so they're still in with the Jewish hierarchy. But the nephew, Paul's sister's son, hears about it in a dinner conversation or in a hallway or whatever's taking place. He goes and tells, Paul sends him to the commander. The commander says in verse 22, don't tell anybody because he knows he's got to to deal with this undercover, uh, literally undercover of darkness as we see in the next verse. So it says in verse 23 and following, and he called to him two of the centurions and he said, get 200 soldiers ready for the third hour of the night. This is the middle of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. What this tells us is there are 470 Roman soldiers. Those of you who are in the military know that is a huge force. This is half of the contingent that was overseeing Jerusalem. So he takes a cavalry, he takes his artillery, these spearmen that are more long distance, he takes his swordsmen, he's got 470 guys. And it says they were to provide mounts for Paul, so they're putting Paul on horseback, and, they bring him, and to bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form. The commander's name is Claudius Lysias, as we see, and he writes it to the most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and he was about to be slain by them, I came upon him with troops and rescued him. And having learned that he was a Roman, now don't you love this? Kind of leaves out that part about, I was about to torture this dude who's a Roman citizen, violate his rights. And that's when I found out. He says, oh, no, no, I'm the good guy. Write me a commendation letter, Felix. He says, I'm sending you Paul. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found out, and I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving of death or imprisonment. What he says is, listen, governor, the guy's innocent. This is just an internal squabble. This is about somebody arguing whether they're premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial. It really doesn't, you know, it's it's just their stuff, their theology. It's no big deal. But he says because they were going to murder him, I had to move him from Jerusalem. Verse 30 says, when I was informed that there would be this plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So he ships him away, and verses 31 through 34 tell us about this night journey. It says, so the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul, and they brought him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. And when these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when he had read it and asked him from what province he was, and, what he, and he learned that he was from Sicilia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Now, what we've just been told is there's this enormous contingent of 470 crack Roman soldiers. This is an escort literally fit for a king. And they go in the dead of night. The first leg of the journey was more than 35 miles. It was uphill, winding areas, cliffs. It's where ambushes could take place, which is why there's such an enormous contingent to protect Paul. And if you're Paul, you're riding on a horse in the middle of 70 cavalry, and then you've got your advance guard and back and forth, and they're all around. How popular do you think Paul is? Remember, these are Roman soldiers who were about to go to bed, and they're told, gear up, 
you're going to go on an all-night forced, grueling march. They go the entire 35 miles in the nighttime. They get there the very next morning. They're exhausted. And the whole time they're thinking, we're doing all this for this dude who's, who's named Paul, who's some Jew. I mean, what is this about? And they get there, they rest the horses, they, they release all the foot soldiers because they're past the, the most dangerous part. They send them back and they say, we're going to put Paul on horseback with the 70 cavalry. They're going to be fast moving and they're going to go the additional 27 miles to Caesarea the next day. And they arrive uh, there in Caesarea. The governor gets the letter, he reads over it, and he determines whether or not he has jurisdiction over Paul. He sees he does, and he says, okay, we're going we're gonna to put you in prison. That's what the praetorium is. Paul moves from one prison cell to another. And so he's thrown back in jail, and there he is. Now, as we've just covered all those details, I want to linger over it for a moment and, and get you to understand just how much is going on here. I mean, God has literally moved in heaven and on earth to protect Paul. You do not move half of the contingent out of Jerusalem to protect a single person. Paul was just a common Jew to the Romans. They're saying this is an internal squabble. It's no big deal. They could have very easily, this guy Claudius could have just said, you know, it's not worth it. One, one more dead Jew is just one less guy to deal with in my world. And remember, the high priest and the others were trying to get Paul. They would have paid a, a, an enormous sum of money Uh, Remember, the 40 came and said, look, get the commander to move Paul through the streets to the place where we normally meet, and we're going to ambush him. They could have very easily said to the commander, you know, bring bring the guy through the streets. Here's some money. We won't hurt any of your guys. We'll just take Paul out with, you know, some kind of a sniper type of thing. But Claudius doesn't do that. God protects Paul. Now, God could have protected Paul any way he wanted. He could have surrounded them uh, with angels. He could have struck these 40 dead. He could have blinded them, as we read happening in other passages in the Scripture. But God gives this very tangible sign of protection to Paul. And I think it's something Paul really needed. Remember, he's, he's there, and do you remember how all this stuff happened? Paul is a guy who went to Jerusalem... Everybody was telling him, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to get arrested. You're going to die if you go there. And he said, God has called me to go to Jerusalem and on to Rome. Paul gets there. He's told by James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, we want you to go do this public uh, paying of vows in the temple out of your own pocket. It's costing you, you know, your money. And we want you to do this for the sake of unity. So Paul does this, and he's, he's thanked for following God and following the instructions of the leadership of the church by getting beaten up by the crowd. Then he's about to be tortured by the Romans. He gets punched in the mouth by the high priest, uh, commanded his trial. There's almost another killing of Paul. Then he finds out, uh, essentially, it'd be like ISIS putting out a death warrant on you and saying there are 40 of their terrorists that are going to be waiting to kill you as you walk out of your house. And Paul's got all this going on, And he gets dragged back into the night. He's sitting there in prison going, God, I thought I was doing what you wanted. Have you ever been there? Have you ever found yourself saying, God, I'm trying to honor you. I'm trying to follow your word. I'm trying to change my life. I'm, you know, I've committed my my life or my marriage to you and things at home aren't getting any better. In fact, they're getting worse. Have you ever said, God, I want to honor you at work, and so you start living for him and doing the things that you know are God's standards, what's right, and instead of getting a promotion, you get a pink slip? 
or if you're a man or a woman who owns your business, uh, the financial uh, bottom line doesn't look good. In fact, your finances start to go into free fall, whether it's at work or in your personal life. School is starting up, and you're saying, as a teacher or a student, I'm committed to living for the Lord this year. I'm going to be a lighthouse in my school or my classroom, and what few friends you have, suddenly you're going to lose because you're standing for Christ. And you're saying, God, where are you? I thought I was doing what you wanted. Are you there? And Paul, as he's gone through all these two days of hits and hard things happening, it would be very easy for him as he's back in the jail, there in the fortress of Antonian in Jerusalem, saying, God, where are you? I want you to look back at verse 11 for a moment. Acts 23.11 says, But on the night, immediately following... This is after all those first hard things that happened. It said the Lord stood at his side. And he said, take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. As Paul goes through two straight days of nonstop hits and he's wondering, where are you, God? Possibly as he's there in prison. It says the Lord stood beside Paul. Aren't those beautiful words? The Lord stood beside Paul. Where are you, God? Paul, I'm right here. And don't miss the words that were spoken. Jesus said, take courage. For, you as, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Jesus says, Paul, nothing has changed. I told you you're going to Rome and you are. I know right now the dots don't connect. You're saying the the whole plan is falling apart. God, where are you? What are you doing? And what Jesus says is, Paul, it's okay. I've got the plan. Everything's going just like it needs to. And you're going, good job, God. Everything's falling apart. Have you ever felt like Paul where you're saying, you know, God, I feel like I'm this pawn in this cosmic chess game and I'm doing what you want and it seems like, boom, sacrifice that pawn and we're thrown aside like we're nothing. And what God says is, I haven't forgotten you. You're not, you're not a disposable piece in a cosmic game to me. You're somebody that I love. And you're somebody that I care about. And you're somebody that I see everything you're going through. And I have a plan for you. You're saying, well, I would love for God to show up right next to me and say, here I am, right? Brothers and sisters, do you realize we have something better? Corinthians tells us, and do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you? Do you remember how the book of Acts began when Jesus was about to ascend into heaven and he told the disciples, I have to go home to heaven so something better can happen, so the Holy Spirit can come? Do you remember that? And as we read that it says God was with Paul, we're saying, I wish God was with me, and he is. We have been sealed. We have been filled and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We have his presence. We have his power. We have the Holy Spirit. God is right here with us. If you're like Paul and you feel like, Roger, I'm rotting in some prison and and things are falling apart, where is God? I want you to not only see that God was there with Paul just as he is with us. He tells us in Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. It says, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? And as Jesus says to Paul, take courage. Some of you have translations that say, be of good cheer. And you're going, those are good words. Smile. 
Be happy. That's not what it means. The word means be of courage. And do you know that Jesus said those same words four different times in the scriptures? We find them in Matthew 9, 2. There Jesus came to a bedridden paralytic, a guy who was paralyzed and, and his, his life was, you know, consisted of being on a mat and begging. And Jesus comes along and he says to him in Matthew 9, 2, take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. The guy said, will you heal me? And Jesus says, you have a greater need than a physical healing. Jesus did that for him as well. But the greatest need that man had was for his sins to be forgiven. And whatever it is that we are facing this morning, as dark as the dungeon looks that we're in, do you know our greatest need is for a Savior? That we cannot pay that penalty of sin and death, that we would be separated from God for all eternity? And what God says is, I'm with you. And I left heaven and I came to earth in order to go to the cross and pay that penalty of death that you owed so you wouldn't be separated from me for eternity. Jesus says, be of courage. Your sins are forgiven if you place your faith and trust in me. I've met the greatest need you will ever have. Those words are found again in Matthew 9, 22, where there was a woman who had a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years, a chronic debilitating illness. The scripture says the woman had suffered much at the hands of physicians, and she's in this crowd, and she's, she's saying, if I can just get to Jesus, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed, and there's this crowd pushing around and the woman reaches out and grabs the hem of his garment. And do you remember what happened? Jesus stops and he goes, who touched me? And the disciples go, Lord, are you kidding me? Everybody's touching you. The crowd is crushing, it's pushing us along. She says, no, 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 somebody touched me. And there's this woman cowering in the crowd. Oh no, oh no. Because it says she felt at that moment she was healed. And she, she comes and she throws herself before the Lord and says, I'm sorry, Lord, it was me. And Jesus says to her in Matthew 9, 22, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. In Matthew 14, 27, the disciples were on a boat. They were going across. Jesus had sent them ahead. The waves were coming, the storm. They were terrified. They thought they were going to die. And add to that, suddenly Jesus comes walking across the ocean on the water. It says he was going to pass them by, and it says they were terrified. And Jesus calls out to them, take courage. It is I, do not be afraid. And then we find it in John chapter 16. In John 16, Jesus is gathered with his disciples. He's in the upper room. It's the night of his betrayal. And it says, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In this world, you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. He says, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Friends, where do you find yourself this morning? Are you in a prison like Paul? Are you struggling with some sickness or a loved one, a chronic illness? Are you somebody who is terrified of the storms around you, the circumstances? Are you afraid of the future, an unknown future, and you're, you, you just don't know where it's going and where is God in all this? We can trust a known God when we look at an unknown future. 
We can know that we have a God that is with us in the prison where we are at. The scripture tells us we have a high priest, an advocate who has gone through everything we've gone through in this world. When we go through sickness, when we're wondering what is all this and we're asking God for his mercy and healing, God sometimes chooses to heal us and sometimes God says the ultimate healing comes in heaven. There are times God shows up in a big way like with Paul. I'm going to give you 470 soldiers to surround you, a tangible sign. Look around for a moment. You have over uh, 900 people sitting around you right now that are a tangible sign that you're not alone. Remember the Holy Spirit's called the paraclete. And we are called as believers, we saw earlier in Acts, to be the parakaleo, those who come alongside and support and encourage each other. Sometimes God shows up in a big way, and sometimes it's in an unseen way where there's that silent, still voice inside us that he says, as he did with the storm, be still. And it says the wave stopped instantly. The disciples were terrified, and they said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? God offers us his peace this morning. Paul knew that. Paul needed to know that as he goes through the last chapters in Acts. In the weeks ahead, you know what we're going to find? Paul just, remember, he's in a prison right now. He's gone from one prison to another prison. And he's going to have trial after trial after trial, as we're going to see in the next thing. They're going to send him ultimately on to Rome where God said he would go. And it wasn't smooth sailing. Do you remember what happens to Paul in the boat? The boat encounters a big storm and it sinks. He gets shipwrecked on the way to Rome. He manages to survive the storm. He crawls up on the beach. They're going to make a fire. And as Paul's gathering wood, a a poisonous viper comes out and bites Paul. And all the natives go, well, this dude really is wicked. He survived the gods of the ocean, but they got him here. Paul shakes the snake off in the thing. He gets burned up. He's fine because God had a plan. Where are you this morning? Do you need God's peace? Is there something you're facing? Is there a fear of school starting tomorrow for some of you and you're afraid of what it's going to be like? Are you facing uh, a chronic illness? Are you facing a situation at home? Are you wondering what's going to happen to you one day when you die? Will you go home to heaven or not? God took care of the greatest need any of us had what we will ever face, which is that he sent his son to save us from our sins. And if we can trust God for eternity, we can trust God for tomorrow. I want you to think about your need this morning. I want us to go to the Lord in prayer. And then we'll close with a a song of worship. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for what it tells us about who you are. And where you are, that you're with us, Father, in the midst of the storm. Whether we find ourselves facing sickness, whether we're in prison, whether we're terrified of some situation, Lord, you have promised you will never leave us or forsake us. You've given us your son. You've shown us that you know our needs and that you're capable of meeting the greatest need we'll ever have. And so, Father, this morning we trust you for what it is we're facing. We turn our lives over to you again. We ask, Father, that you'd lead and guide us through the storm, that you would give us your peace that passes all understanding. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.